please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be beginning reading in verse 22. And I'm going to read through chapter 10 of chapter 2. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Being born again, not of corruptible seed. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm reading verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore? Laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word. I pray that as we study words from 1 Peter and the topic of brotherly love, that you would bless our time. Father, please give me clarity of thought still our hearts and, and focus our minds on what you'd have for us this morning and help us to learn something new about how to walk as Christians and to be holy in the world in which we live. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So far in our study of 1 Peter, we've talked about the nature of our salvation. That was the beginning of the first chapter. And we've begun to study the practical outworkings of that salvation. Uh, in, the, in verse 15, Peter gives us the charge, be ye holy. And we've talked about how that, that command to be holy really is just a seed that will then sprout into the rest of Peter's teaching as we go through the epistle. Uh, we, we're going to learn how to be holy in all the various realms in which we find ourselves, in our homes, at our jobs, uh, as we interact with the unsaved, as we interact with government. Uh, and last time we met to discuss 1 Peter, we discussed... Uh, what Peter meant when he said, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And really we talked about how that is a command that, that teaches us how to be holy with respect to God uh, and how in our interactions and our attitude toward him. 
If you look at chapter 2, verse 17, skipping ahead a little bit, you see this statement, which is sort of a, a summary. It's a, a bit of a bigger summary than be ye holy. It says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Again, these, these little short commands. Really, when we studied last time, we were studying what it means to fear God. And today, we're going to study what it means to love the brotherhood. Um, this is the, the practical outworking of Peter's teaching to be holy as respecting Christian brothers. Uh, and having said that, we're going to turn to look at this passage now. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the source of brotherly love, the nature of brotherly love, and then finally the practice of brotherly love. First, let's consider the source. Verse 22 says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. This verse says we have purified our souls in obeying the truth. How do we obey the truth? Did you know that the gospel is a command? From the very beginning, the gospel has always been a command. Uh, you'll recall Jesus' words in Mark 1.15 when he first began to preach. He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. He commanded people to repent and believe. And Jesus' words are echoed on Mars Hill when Paul was preaching uh, to those that gathered there on the Areopagus. He says in Acts 17.30, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Again, the gospel is a command to repent and believe. When Christ returns, we'll see the consequences of failing to believe, failing to obey the truth. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9 says, He will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel is a command. It's a command to repent and believe. So when we see Peter here say that by obeying the truth, we purify our souls, we understand that it refers to obedience to the command of the gospel, which is the truth. This makes sense because uh, Peter says it's obedience to this command that purifies our souls. Now, we might be uncomfortable with the phrasing in verse 22. It says, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Uh, some translations render it, having purified your souls. And knowing what we know about salvation, and that it's not our own works, but God's work in us, we might expect the verse to read something more like, um, having had your souls purified by God, or seeing God has purified your souls. But it says, seeing ye have purified your souls, uh, and so that uh, might make us a little uncomfortable. But as we continue on in the passage, we see that, that Peter is not teaching anything different than we know from the rest of the scriptures. Uh, it's all a result of the Spirit's work in us that we are capable of this obedience to the truth. Continuing on in verse 22, uh, Peter says, he says, We obey the truth through the Spirit. It's only through the Spirit that we can obey the truth. Uh, as we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no man can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. It's only through the Spirit that we can confess Jesus is Lord. It's only through the Spirit that we can obey the truth. And the specific work of the Holy Spirit that enables this obedience is the new birth. 
which we see in the very next verse. Verse 23, it says, being born again. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. When we are born again, we are given eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Remember Jesus' words in John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But, as we all know from personal experience, the Spirit does not do his work in a vacuum. The means that the Spirit uses to open our eyes is the Word, specifically the preaching of the Word in the Gospel. And that's what Peter tells us here. He says, you've been born again by the Word of God. And then skipping down to verse 25, he says, uh, this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. I, I Romans, 10, <clears throat> Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, reminds us of the importance of sharing the word with others. It says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. As we share the gospel, people are enabled to believe. And as they believe, they'll confess the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. God uses the word as the means by which he brings people to himself. Now, what's the Spirit's goal in this purification? What's the Spirit's goal in the, in the new birth? Well, he has many goals, but Peter highlights a specific one here. In verse 22, he says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. We are born again unto unfeigned or genuine love of the brethren. And Peter commands us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. Love for our Christian brothers and sisters is one of the primary evidences that we have been born again. John, in his first epistle, is very concerned with explaining to people uh, evidences of the new birth and giving them assurance that they have eternal life. And 1 John 4, 7 says this. He says, um, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. If someone is loving their Christian brothers and sisters, that's evidence that they have been born again. Now, again, this isn't to say it's the only purpose of the new birth, but it is to say that as respecting Christian brothers and sisters, you have been purified so that you might interact with each other in love. This is one of the practical outworkings of the command to be ye holy. This is the way we are to be holy when we're interacting with Christian brothers and sisters. It's to interact in love. This brings us to the nature of brotherly love. Having considered the source, the Spirit's work in the new birth, now let's consider the nature. What does love of the brethren mean? That's what we're born again unto. That's what we're purified unto, love of the brethren. What does that mean? And this phrase is really just one single word in the Greek. It's a familiar word. It's the word Philadelphia. This is a sophisticated audience, and I know that your minds immediately go to the undefeated Philadelphia Eagles. But uh, many of you know the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. But what is brotherly love? And to find the answer, 
I want to go all the way back to the very first brotherhood. It's the brotherhood of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What? Hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. What can we observe about this first brotherhood? First, we can observe that it was characterized by envy. When Cain saw that God had accepted Abel's offering, his countenance fell. He didn't accept Cain's offering because it was unrighteous and Abel's was righteous. Second, we can notice that Cain concealed his envy with hypocrisy and deceit. Cain spoke with his brother in the field, as you might expect brothers to do, but that was a facade. It was concealing the envy that Cain harbored in his heart toward his brother Abel. Third, we can notice that the envy in this first brotherhood developed into malice, and Cain slew his brother. Under the common law, the English common law on which our law is built, Murder was defined as the killing of another human being with malice aforethought. See, malice aforethought was a concept that was very important when considering murder because a killing could be accidental. You might have done the act that ended up with someone dying, but you didn't have the heart, the intention to do that thing. But if you killed someone with what they called malice aforethought, a forethought, hatred in your heart, premeditation, that's what we refer to it as today, premeditated murder. If you killed someone with malice of forethought, then it was considered murder. And that seems to be exactly what we see from Cain. It seems that he drew his brother into the field and had this conversation with him. They were talking together. They were doing what you might expect brothers to do. But Cain, malice concealed in his heart, rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And Abel, one half of the first brotherhood fell to the earth, which received his blood. And God said to Cain, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. That's the brotherhood that man developed. That's the so-called universal brotherhood of man that we're all born into. And that's fundamentally the understanding of brotherhood that we bring with us to this phrase, brotherly love. And so when we think brotherly we're not thinking necessarily of a purified brotherhood. But we understand that this is not the brotherhood Peter is talking about. Peter tells us in verse 23 we're to have an unfeigned or a genuine, a sincere love. 
and a fervent love, not an apathetic love. And this love comes from a pure heart, not a heart filled with malice and envy. Uh, and if we continue to chapter 2 in our passage, we can see that Peter lists in verse 1 some of these attributes that we see so clearly in Cain. He says, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. These are things we are to lay aside in the brotherhood into which we've been born. Peter is talking about a different brotherhood. He says we've been born not of corruptible seed, not of the flesh. He's not talking about the fleshly birth into which we've all been born, but of incorruptible. It's a spiritual brotherhood. It's the brotherhood of Christ. We're born into God's family as sons and daughters, which is an amazing thing. We're not just saved from hell, but we're actually sons and daughters of God. And we could go to many different passages to explore this idea, but I want to go to Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to look at verses 9 through 17. And I want to look at this passage specifically, because I think it very clearly tells us and shows us how our great older brother reversed the pattern that we saw in Cain. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom all are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause, he is not ashamed to call them, he is not ashamed to call us, brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. In these verses we see Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, humbling himself and suffering so that he might make it possible for sinners to become his brethren. He was establishing a new brotherhood. He came to earth and took part in our flesh and blood, it says in verse 14. He came to undergo the suffering of death and to taste death for every man, it says in verse 9. He did this so that he might be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. And he did it all that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And it's so unlike Cain. Jesus came to establish a brotherhood on entirely different foundations. Instead of Cain's envy, we have Christ's humility. Instead of Cain's hypocrisy, we have Christ's truth. Instead of Cain's malice, we have Christ's love. And instead of the blood of Abel crying out from the ground for vengeance, we have the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. This is the brotherhood for which he died. This is the brotherhood into which we are called. It's not the brotherhood of the flesh, of the corruptible seed. 
It's the brotherhood of the spirit of the incorruptible seed. And this is the sort of love we must, must have for one another. John links these two brotherhoods and the contrast between them. In 1 John 3, verses 11 through 16, he says, For this is the message ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby we perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So what is the nature of brotherly love? It's unfeigned. It's genuine. It's not faked. It's not like Cain's characterized by deceit and hypocrisy. Our love is from a pure heart, a heart purified by obedience to the truth through the Spirit, not a heart like Cain's filled with malice and envy. And having considered the source of brotherly love in the Spirit's work and the nature, I want to consider the practice of brotherly love. And here I just want to walk through several different ways that we can put this brotherly love into practice. This is not comprehensive, and I'm sure that many of you could add to what I say, and I wish you would, because I have a lot to learn about brotherly love, and I, I learned my own inadequacy preparing uh, this lesson. To consider the practice, I want to look at three things. First, the objects of brotherly love. Second, the attitude of brotherly love. And third, the actions of brotherly love. So first, let's talk about the objects of brotherly love. This is simple. All believers, all Christians. Remember, in this epistle, Peter is writing, in verse 1, says, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's not writing to a single congregation, but he commands them to have brotherly love for each other. We should have a heart of brotherly love for all believers in every place. Second, I want to consider the attitude of brotherly love. And this is really like what we just talked about with the nature. Peter says we should love one another fervently. Uh, this isn't a casual endeavor, as we'll see from some of the actions that we're going to talk about. Uh, this isn't a slightly warm feeling that we get when we hear about missionaries. It's not a, a stray prayer for a Facebook post. Uh, it's not the occasional purchase from a Christian organization like Chick-fil-A that you count as a donation. <laughs> uh, consider the verse we had a moment ago. It says, Hereby we perceive the love of God, 1 John 3.16. Hereby we perceive the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's an all-encompassing goal, laying down your life. Uh, it could mean physical death in some circumstances, but for us, uh, that would be uh, remarkable. For us, it means laying down our priorities, our money, our time. We subordinate our own ambitions to the needs of the brethren. We think of others as more highly than ourselves. Uh, we do it without envy, without malice, without hypocrisy. We're we are to intentionally work toward the flourishing of the brethren, both spiritual and physical. Um, and let's walk through a couple actions, but, but before we do, I want to consider the next words in, in 1 John 3. Uh, he says in verse 17 and 18, he says, Whoso hath this world's good, uh, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up, shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? 
See, do you have good? Do you have some of this world's good? Money, car, uh, it, it could be anything that we, we own, food in this, this, this world increasingly. But if you have some of this world's good and you see your brother in need and you do nothing about it, you're shutting up your, your heart of compassion. John says, how can we know that the love of God dwells in you? He says, my little children, verse 18 of 1 John 3, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, I think we've all known people who use the word brother a lot, uh, and it sounds pious, uh, but they never really lift a finger to help you. Uh, they never lay down any part of their own lives for the believers. And it's not wrong to call each other brother, but sometimes the style can take the place of the substance. And that's what Peter's talking about when he says it's unfeigned love. It's not fake love. It's not a phony love. It's not a facade. It's real love. Uh, and, and I want to consider a few different ways that we can, we can do this practically. First, we can practice brotherly love by exhorting and encouraging one another. Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We should consider each other for the purpose of building each other up. We want to provoke good works in each other. Uh, one brother might see that another has allowed his career to take a priority in his life to the neglect of his family. And, and so the one brother might come up to the other one and exhort him, encourage him to, to realign his priorities. And you can know that about one another by, by knowing each other and by coming and, and assembling together. That's the context in which, in which the writer to the Hebrews gave us that charge. Uh, we shouldn't only exhort one another, though. We should encourage one another. Uh, Paul said this of Philemon in Philemon uh, verse 7. He says, We have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. See, Philemon was a refreshing person. Uh, he was the sort of person who, after you had spent some time with him, you came away uh, encouraged and refreshed. And I think we could all aspire to be a little bit more like Philemon in our interactions with each other. Exhortation and encouragement is not necessarily verbal. Not all of us are, are gifted in that way. We're not all gifted to go up and say something to someone. But there are other ways that you can be an encouragement or, and an exhortation. Uh, the example of faithful service is an encouragement to many. I think we're all encouraged when we think about the people who dedicate so much time and effort to putting this, this meeting together like we talked about uh, uh, earlier in our prayer. Uh, that's an encouragement. That's not verbal. Uh, a well-run home is an encouragement and an exhortation. That's not verbal. Uh, a disciplined life is something people can see. That's not verbal. But we, we should all encourage and exhort one another. <clears throat> uh, secondly, another way we can practice brotherly love is by refusing to do anything with our speech that tears down the brotherhood. Uh, remember in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Peter tells us to lay aside all evil speaking or all slander. So as one example of the way we can avoid tearing down people with our speech, we can refuse to gossip. The Proverbs contain many warnings about gossip. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where no wood is, there the fire goeth out. So where there is no talebearer, the strife ceaseth. Many of the men were just on a, a men's retreat. I took my little boy to a, a camp out with his trail life group. And so we've seen what happens when, when you stop putting wood on the fire, the fire goes out. And there are probably some, some cold ashes in a couple of campgrounds around Ohio because of where we left this morning. 
but that's, the, that's what the Proverbs uses, that, that metaphor, the Proverbs uses that to talk about uh, gossip. Uh, if, you don't, if you refuse to gossip, then any little fire that might have been there, it just goes away. It goes out. And, and the, the strife that could have burnt up a lot of uh, good relationships goes away. So we shouldn't refuse to gossip. Uh, another example of how we can refuse to tear each other down, tear down the brotherhood with our speech, is refusing to use labels that divide the body of Christ. Uh, we are called to brotherly love because we are part of the family of God. Ephesians 4.4 4 says there is one body. Verse 3 of Ephesians 4 says we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God calls us, his family, by unifying names. Christians, brethren, saints. These are unifying names because they apply equally to all Christians, to all members of the one body of Christ. But from the earliest days of Christianity, division and faction has plagued the church. There's always been an effort to divide Christians into factions or teams. I wonder why. I think we can recognize that just from a, a political perspective, it's easier to conquer people when they're divided into teams. But we've seen that even in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the spirit that led people to say, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Uh, and if you think this dividing into teams and factions and labels is a minor thing, consider Galatians 5, 19 to 21. Peter, or I'm sorry, Paul is defining the deeds of the flesh. He says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Powerful words to consider as we think about how we refer to ourselves. We aren't called to fervently love Baptists, and we aren't called to fervently love Calvinists. We're called to fervently love the brethren. Another way we can practice brotherly love is by protecting the truth. One of the most loving things we can do for our Christian brethren is to ensure that truth is preserved and lived out vibrantly. Uh, Jude 3 tells us we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, just because we shouldn't divide into teams or tribes doesn't mean we should have a very open, loosey-goosey view of the Bible. We should study this book all the way from Genesis to maps. <laughs> come on, come on. Genesis to maps, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We should study it not as casual fans, but as though our life depended on it. We should not be afraid to hold our convictions about the smallest, finest details. Um, but this is a balance. These, this is the balance. How do you contend for the faith while not falling into the factional uh, attitude of, of I'm a particular uh, denomination or particular you know, subgroup of this denomination and, and that tribalism? How do we avoid that while at the same time contending for the truth? Um, and I found a particular thought very helpful in this regard. I've tried to trace down the origin of the quote and been unsuccessful, so it's just attributed to some believer at some point. Um, but it said we're to draw a narrow circle of truth around ourselves, but to have a wide heart of love for God's people. And what does this mean? 
Well, we're to draw a narrow circle of truth around ourselves because we're to stand firmly in what we believe to be true, even if we stand alone. We should study this word by which we're born again. This is the source. Study it. Allow it to guide us into all truth. At the same time, we're to cultivate a wide heart of love for God's people, people we might disagree with. Uh, we might not agree with a particular uh, denomination or tribe or group because of various uh, doctrinal stances that they hold, but we can still love them as brothers because we have the same Lord and we've been born into the same family. Um, uh, another example, these are, those are examples of, of how we can use our words or not use our words to tear down the brotherhood. Um, another way that we can uh, practice brotherly love is to be aware of our brother's consciences. Romans 14 contains familiar instructions on how the stronger brother is to interact with the weaker brother. Uh, these, the stronger and weaker brother are both Christians. They disagreed over whether you could eat certain kinds of foods. Uh, the stronger brother uh, understood that where the Bible is not prohibited a thing, the Christian has liberty. But the weaker brother couldn't eat this food without feeling that he was sinning. He was violating his conscience. Uh, Romans 14, 15 tells the stronger brother this. He says, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. What does this mean? Well, we shouldn't do anything to cause a Christian brother to stumble. That's how we interact in love. That's how we walk in love. Uh, and this is a big topic that maybe we'll study at, in the future in more depth. There are a lot of edge cases and, and different things to consider uh, with respect to the weaker and the stronger brother. But I'll leave you with this thought from, from Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.13. And this is one that's, that's pretty all-encompassing and, and I think the attitude we should have when we're interacting with our brothers. He says, wherefore, 1 Corinthians 8.13, wherefore, if my meat make my brother to offend... I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Paul says, we can argue about the edge cases, but you know what? For me, if I'm doing something that's going to cause him to offend, I'll be a vegetarian the rest of my life. I'll never eat this stuff again. Um, and that's, how, that's the attitude we should have. That's the laying down your life attitude. Um, that's the be holy attitude that we should have. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. There's one final thought. We should practice brotherly love by providing for each other's physical needs. Uh, John 3:17 says, "Whoso hath this world's goods seeth his brother have need." We just talked about that. Uh, consider the radicals in Acts. Acts 2:42 uh, to 45 says, uh, "All that believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need." Um, that's a, a pretty radical approach, but. If we have this world's good, if we have money, if we have food, if we have a car, if God's entrusted you with some material goods, uh, then be watchful for the needs of your brothers. Uh, be free with what isn't really yours to begin with. God's given you things to be a good steward. Uh, this means if you hear of a need, don't simply count on a church or a charity to, to fill the need. Um, you can't set up auto pay and mentally check this off. This is active love. This is fervent love. It might require some forethought. Maybe you need to put a little money aside every month in a bank account and have a fund that you can use to help brothers and sisters that you learn about. Uh, and this is really part of our command, uh, the command in Galatians 6.2, which is the thought we'll end with. Galatians 6.2 tells us to bear ye one another's burdens. Um, 
We're to bear each other's burdens, financial burdens, emotional burdens. And as I was thinking about this, this idea of bearing one another's burdens, I was reminded of a section from The Lord of the Rings. Um, Frodo and Sam are taking the, the ring of power to Mount Doom. They want to destroy the ring of power. And as they go, the burden gets to Frodo. It becomes very difficult for him to carry it. And he says, I can't manage it, Sam. It's such a weight to carry, such a weight. A lot of the people in this room have uh, weights that they are carrying that they haven't, uh, haven't been lifted yet. And the only way to know that is to know them. And we're commanded to bear one another's burdens. So we need to think about, in a, in a room this size, there are burdens that people are bearing. And think to yourself, am I bearing anyone's burden? Do I know anyone's burden? Have I helped carry the load in any way? And sometimes you can't carry it, but you can help. And this is uh, kind of the, the very last scene where they're, they're right there at the, at the, the foothills of, of Mount Doom. They're at the end of the journey. But uh, we'll read what happens. It says, now for it, now for the last gasp, said Sam as he struggled to his feet. He bent over Frodo, rousing him gently. Frodo groaned, but with a great effort of will, he staggered up and then he fell upon his knees again. He raised his eyes with difficulty to the dark slopes of Mount Doom towering above him. And then, pitifully, he began to crawl forward on his hands. Sam looked at him and wept in his heart, but no tears came to his dry and stinging eyes. I said I'd carry him if it broke my back, he muttered, and I will. Come, Mr. Frodo, he cried. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. I think that's a, a good example of bearing one another's burdens and the, the attitude that we should have. We might not be able to do uh, what needs to be done, and we might not be able to carry the burden ourselves, but we can carry our brother and with him the burden. Well, our time's gone. We've barely scratched the surface of what is, a, a, I think, a topic that really requires a lifetime to understand as we interact in community with each other. But let's not forget, <clears throat> in closing, the source of our brotherhood. It's spiritual. We're born again into a spiritual brotherhood uh, to live in God's family as part of a brotherhood established by Christ. Uh, it's got a different nature than the first brotherhood, the one established by man. Its foundational principle is because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We're to love one another with a pure heart, without envy, malice, or hypocrisy. Uh, finally, we're to put this brotherly love into practice. We don't want to love in word only, but in deed and in truth. And we do that by providing for each other's physical and spiritual needs. We grow into this brotherhood and live out its principles more perfectly as we study the source of it. This is where our, the brotherhood comes from, and this is what we need to study to learn how to live as brothers 
uh, more perfectly. And we're going to study uh, the word itself, Lord willing, the next time we meet to study First Peter together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we've had together. Thank you for your servant, Peter. And uh, again, as we've said so many times, how he fulfilled your command to feed your sheep uh, in his life as he worked in the book of Acts, we can read, to, through in the establishment of the church, but also in these epistles that he wrote so many years ago to strangers, elect exiles scattered all throughout Asia Minor. Uh, he fed those sheep and he continues, uh, you feed your sheep through your servant Peter, even now, even today, many, many, many years later in a, a gymnasium in Westerville. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the brotherhood. Father, help us to love one another with a pure heart fervently. In Christ's name I pray, amen.